0: As I've mentioned a a few times, in January of this year, we entered into our 25th year as a church. One of the things we are going to do is to write a history of our church. Each of you is going to get a page. Every member chronicled account of what you've done and not done in the story of our church. Wouldn't that be fun to read together? Yeah, maybe not so much. Hmm? You ever wonder how Thomas feels about that? He did a lot. He was faithful through a lot. He was the one who said, let's go to Jerusalem and die with Jesus. But do we know him as courageous Thomas? No, when it comes to his page in the account of the early church, we know him as the guy who doubted, Right? It's a bummer of a title. It's really why I wouldn't really want us over our 25-year history to write, you know, about us. Because people would reduce your page down to one adjective. It would be in the hands of other people to label you as whoever you are and whatever you did. That story would be tricky. But one interesting thing that does come out of that Doubting Thomas account is that Jesus proclaims something that I think we forget when we read these kinds of stories. Because as I'm in Acts, I'm thinking, wouldn't it have been great to have been part of these moments? We're about to hit Pentecost next week. Wouldn't it have been great to be there at the original, the original Pentecost, Pentecost was an Old Testament feast, but the original moment of this pouring of the spirit wouldn't it have been great to have been there wouldn't it have been great to be able to see the risen Jesus and then be a witness to others I mean wouldn't that have been just like the most blessed commission ever Jesus said no isn't that interesting we forget that sometimes Jesus out of the doubting Thomas story said you see and you believe great kind of good But among the blessings I'm going to dole out in the kingdom of God, that's like second-tier blessing. That's not first-prize blessing. First-prize blessing is those who didn't see and still believe. Interesting, isn't it? If you had to be in two camps of blessing in the kingdom of God, we're actually in a better spot than the people we're reading about because these guys are called... As we saw from last week's sermon. They're called and they're going to be prepped to be witnesses of stuff they saw. The the way that they'll describe it later is, we're telling you about the things that we saw, that we touched, that we heard. We sensed it with our ears. But we're kind of giving you an account of it so you can believe it since you didn't sense it. And Jesus says that of the two camps of people, those who were actual witnesses and those who have to believe the account of the witnesses, there's a greater blessing for those who actually believe without the experience. You know what that, that means? That means that what you do with the words that are recorded here today are of eternal significance. You could hear and dismiss. You could hear and forget. You could, to use one of Jesus' parables, be the word, the soil, That is going to let the word grow and sprout up a little bit. But then the cares of this week will choke it out and you'll forget it. Or you could be shallow and you could receive this account that's been given to us. But it can be stolen away because of our forgetfulness and all the different things. Or the, the trials of life could beat it down and kind of just wither it away. Or we could actually have good hearts, good soil. And we could receive this witness That's been presented to us here in the book of Acts. In the acts of Jesus through his spirit. The acts of Jesus and the spirit of the apostles. The the works that get done. As we're studying this book. What we saw last week is that we're in the second half. We're in a part two of an account written by Luke. This is why we hear about where Mount uh, of olives is the mount called Olivet that we hear about in verse 12, right? It's why we're getting a, a description of where it is. Everybody who would have been there knew, but Luke isn't writing to everybody who was there who knew where the Mount of Olives is. Luke is writing to Theophilus. And so in the beginning of Luke and in the beginning of Acts, he says, Hey, Theophilus, I'm telling you some things so that you can have certainty, even if you didn't see it. I'm giving you an account of stuff. Because I want you to be able to believe something, receive this blessing Jesus was talking about. I want you to be able to understand what's here so you could be blessed. And so Theophilus, not knowing really the, the layout of Jerusalem and the surrounding area, he gets little markers through the story to let him know Mount of Olives is about a Sabbath day journey away. Those are helpful points for us. Last week, we also got some... Some different categories given to us. We got the category based on the structure of Luke and Acts of Jesus as the risen king deploying things out of Jesus moving from the Roman world to the heart of Jerusalem. So that the story continues from the heart of Jerusalem out into the Roman world. We thought a little bit about what it meant for Jesus to be taken up, right? What that actually meant sort of spatially. And temporally, but more so what it meant strategically, what it meant for Jesus positionally enthroned at the right hand of the father on the spot, the only spot where really he'd be able to, as we read in Revelation, be able to deploy the scroll, to break the seals, to see his plan for the world kind of unfold. Jesus is at the only spot where that could actually be deployed That's kind of what we all got from the first half of chapter 1. It was, in some ways, a long introduction, and thank you for bearing with me through the length of it. But it was a really significant introduction because there was a lot Luke was setting up for us. And I would think that if you put so much time, so much symbolism, so much structure into your account, that the place you want to go next is staffing. Doesn't it seem an odd story for Luke to park on next? Oh, by the way, one of the 12 died, so we have to replace him. Thought we'd tell you the story of how it goes. You know, Luke, you had me in the first 11 verses. I was hearing you, and I was like, wow, I am jazzed for this. I liked your first account. I'm ready for your second account, and now you're gonna tell me the story of the process you went by in order to staff your team. If it's important to you, I guess it's important to you. And apparently, it's really important. Paul used similar words when he talked about something in the kingdom of God. And he gave a significant sense of similar importance. Although he took it a very a much more direct path to get to the importance. He said it this way. I delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received. Then he tells two things. One point he backs it up. And then another point and he backs it up. First point is this. Christ died. For our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The proof is that he was buried. Because you don't bury somebody who's not dead. But the second thing. Is that he was raised on the third day. In accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on and gives some more proofs of that. Because he came back to life. The proof of it. Just like the proof that he was dead. Is that we put him in the ground. The proof that he came back to life. Is that he appeared to a whole mess of people. Then he goes on and documents all of those appearances. But what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is, I think, actually the point that Luke is making in the very beginning. If the deployed work of the enthroned king is going to happen on the planet, it's going to happen because of the witnesses to the resurrection. Paul said the stuff that's of most importance is that Jesus died and came back to life. And the mission we're going to see unfold through the rest of Acts is so important that when one of the 12 witnesses to the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus is gone. Well, actually, he wasn't a witness to the resurrection, was he? (laughs) But he was one of the 12. It was so important, though there were 120 other people, men and women, brothers and sisters, all there it was still so significant that they had 12 established witnesses that the first thing Luke wants to tell us about is how they replaced Judas. So if it's important to Luke, let's assume it needs to be important to us as well. So we're just going to walk our way through the story here. And we're going to start with the work of these witnesses. Let's look again in verse 12. Says then, and we should park. There for a second, just to remind us where we are. I promise we're not going to do this with every single one of the words, but we are going to do it with the first two, just so we remember what we talked about last time. Then means after the 40 days that Jesus had been appearing, proving his resurrection, doing the command work, the ordering, the dictating work that God was doing from the throne, he was doing on the earth, having risen and been there for 40 days, he's giving his commands and telling his disciples. Primarily one thing. Stay here. Stay here and wait. So it's in between that 40th day after the resurrection. When Jesus ascended. And what's going to come up on the 50th day. At the feast of Pentecost. That we'll get to in Acts chapter 2. It's in that 10 day time period. That the word then is pointing. It's then that they. They. And the they, if we went back, is referring to these 11 apostles. It's them in verse, or it's the apostles that he gives commands to in chapter 1, verse 2. We hear of them in verse 3 and 4. He calls them you in verse 5. It's they are the ones who then ask them, is this the time when your kingdom's going to come? So we've been hearing about the apostles. That's the they in verse 12. They obey the king. And they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem for Theophilus' help, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And it was these folks, Peter and John and James, the most three famous, right? The fishermen. And Andrew, who's... Sort of makes his way into the most famous foursome. If you had to have four, Andrew gets to be a part of it. If you only get to have three, sorry, Andrew, you're usually left out. But then the rest of the guys, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, and Simon, and Judas. Not that Judas, but this Judas, who always needs to be called, not that guy, but, you know, James's kid. If you count them all up, you've got 11. And we read in verse 14, all of these were with one, all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. And the women could, in some ways, John MacArthur said it this way, it it could have a capital W. We know these women because if you read back in Luke, all the men fled. All the men were scared. Peter, the worst of them. It was the women who stayed faithful. So these aren't just women any women these are the women and the woman mary the mother of jesus and his, his brothers which is kind of interesting if we have thought about the brothers before this they were opposed to jesus they were not his fans They were, you you don't really get to understand the backstory. Maybe it was sibling rivalry. Maybe they were just sick of Jesus being the goody-two-shoes of the family. But for whatever reason, they were not really fans of what Jesus was doing. Interestingly, Paul tells us later on that, that when Jesus was doing all of his appearances, he says he appeared to the 500, and he appeared to the apostles. But in the middle of that, he says, and to James. And something about the fact that the brother who died has now come back to life seems to have swayed James. And so it's not just James, but James has brought along Jude and Joseph and Simeon and the others that are named. And this work of what the waiting future witnesses are doing may just seem, remember this question about Acts? Descriptive, telling us what happened. But Luke Tends to describe things with a little bit of a prescriptive hint to it. Because what he says they're doing shows up again in the story. These are just teasers for later, perhaps. But it says all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. If we're going to read here what's going to happen post-Pentecost to this massive group of Christians or of Jews that have gathered in that are are changing their perspective about Jesus. We read this. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. There's a lot of stuff going on in that early community. But what are they devoting themselves to? Part of it is the prayers. Later on, in the first squabble that arises in the church, where there's some real racial tension, actually, in the the New Testament church, the apostles try to figure out how to handle this. And part of the solution that they they arrive to is they say, Therefore, brothers, pick from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, to whom we will appoint this duty. They came up with a solution. They needed some volunteers. You guys choose your volunteers. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There will be a lot of things that they'll devote themselves to. But early on, what God has his people doing in their waiting is praying. I've mentioned before over the life of our church, and we have tried to course correct on this one. But the history of our church can be marked by a few different strengths, to be sure. But There was a season when I had to admit prayer was not one of our strengths as a church. We were not a regularly praying church. And I don't know that I would say that, that prayer, being a praying community, is like one of our fastballs right yet. I would say we're growing as a praying community. But I think it's very instructive that when Luke describes what they're doing while they're waiting, he doesn't just have them twiddling their thumbs. doesn't have them engaged in something akin to a first century, you know, Angry Birds kind of game. He has them devoting themselves to praying. Because the promises that God made about what he was going to do through them were so significant, there really couldn't be anything else they were going to devote themselves to. What else could you do if God assigned you a task that was so far beyond your capacity that you realized God said you are going to have power, but you don't have power. You will be strengthened for this, but you're currently weak. So what is the one thing you're going to do if God designates you as somebody who's supposed to perform a powerful task, but you lack the power to do it? Well, you should probably pray. And if we're honest, doesn't that just feel like the gap that we live in so frequently? God, you've, you've called me to be a faithful witness on campus. God, you've, you've called me to love this person that you've put me with. As a friend or as a spouse Lord, you've given children to me. You put them in my home. I feel so utterly incapable of doing what I know you want me to do. Shouldn't we find ourselves in this exact spot that as Christ witnesses, the one thing we get right out of the gate that we ought to be devoted to is a sense of our helpless praying, our devotion to prayer, where we come together with one accord and we just say, um, Help. I don't know exactly what these prayers were. They may have been some of the prayers Jesus taught them to pray. They may have been remembering Jesus say, you can pray, your kingdom come. You can pray, glorify your name. You can pray a number of different things. But in the middle of all of it is going to be this sense that if any of those things are going to be answered, it's going to be done by God's power and we don't have the power to get them done. So right out of the gate, Luke tells us, in language he'll echo later on, that the work of God's witnesses is to come together and pray. But in one of those accounts that you're also really grateful also is in Scripture. We don't just have the PR version of the early apostles. It's not as though Judas, who really ended the book of Luke on kind of a sour note, he as we were talking about earlier, he had a really bad Good Friday if you're thinking about it. It was not a great time for him. We get two different accounts of his death, we'll explore a little bit more why this one's kind of different But what I like about the way that Luke is telling the story is that when Judas fails as miserably as he failed in similar fashion to the way that Peter failed pretty miserably that night as well, Luke doesn't just sweep those things under the rug and say, you know, I haven't told you much about Bartholomew. What a guy. Let's focus the spotlight on Bartholomew a little bit. Actually, we're not going to hear anything about him, really. Luke says, you, you might be wondering about Judas, it was a big deal. The honesty scripture brings to our weaknesses and not just the work of witnesses, but the problems that we find among ourselves as witnesses is always very refreshing. It's the similar energy that you find the prophet writing about David's story. And we realize he's going to be so much better than Saul. He's going to finally be, it seems, the guy who's going to unite all of the tribes of Judah and Israel together into one accord. And he's going to be the guy who's going to solve all the problems that we had for the entire book of Judges. And then we realize Bathsheba. And the prophet's like, yep, let's talk about Bathsheba. Because David was somebody to wet your palate but not satisfy your desire. He was fallen like the rest of us. The reason I find the Bathsheba stories and the Judas stories encouraging is because I find similar temptation arises in all of us. And if our weakness meant that we got written out of God's story, how discouraging would that be? And yet Luke decides, let's talk about the problem. And so he brings us into a meeting that Peter had. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, which gives us an indication that the 11 that were listed, the brothers that are listed, the the women that are listed, Mary being listed. It was just a highlight. These were some of the celebrities. If you brought everyone together, Peter's talking to a group of about 120 people. And he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, where he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, what he's about to quote as the passage continues from verse 17 on is the psalm, a couple Psalms that point to Judas, and he says are the Old Testament verses that were fulfilled by the failure Of Judas. But you might wonder where did he really get permission to do that? Where did Peter get permission to look into the Psalms and say, hey, remember that thing that just happened? That was about him. Because I don't think that the psalmists knew they were talking about Judas. In similar fashion, the way that they borrow at times from the Old Testament leaves me with some questions. And if you were in small group this last week and you were going through this text, you might have had sort of a similar question. Where do you, where do you get the right to do this? Not everything can be answered, just like not everything can be answered in the life of Jesus by saying um, he was God. Some things can. That was Jesus. He was God. There are moments that we have to point to Peter and say, "Mm, apostolic. So (laughs) we're going to give the guy some credit here. But more than just kind of saying, hey, I'm Peter, so I said so. I think Peter's getting permission from the way he saw Jesus tell the story. Jesus said this in John 13. If you know these things, and he was referring to what it would mean to serve one another. Blessed are you if you do them. But immediately puts a qualifier on. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. And then what does Jesus do in John 13? He goes back and he quotes a psalm. And he says, here's the psalm. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He's quoting from Psalm 41. So Jesus in John 13 is pointing back about the fact that Judas is going to do something. And to do that, he quotes a psalm and says that psalm actually needs to be fulfilled. The psalm starts, all who hate me, whisper about me. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Having quoted that little bit, it then says in John 13, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me." Now that in John was a mild way of describing what was about to happen. Matthew quotes it a little bit worse. Matthew says, "Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed." But woe is not a word that we use a whole lot, unless we're really impressed by something. Look at my grade. Whoa, dude, you didn't even study. Not the woe Jesus is using right here. Jesus is like, whoa, dude, this betrayal is going to be totally sick. That, you're just going to want to see this one. That's not the way it's being used. Whoa, the way Jesus is using it is kind of the antonym to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Who are the people that you think are happiest, best, most prosperous in the kingdom of God? You think it's all the rich, all the successful, everybody who gets everything they want? No, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty, who are mourning, who are, who are poor. That word blessed? If you were to try and create an antonym for blessed, you would probably do no better than the word woe. If you're saying everything's going well for you, blessed, everything going really badly for you is the word woe. It gets used sometimes in the prophets. It gets used sometimes by Jesus. And here Jesus ascribes it to Judas. So Jesus is saying Judas is going to do something. I'm going to bring you a psalm that tells you what it's going to feel like for me. Peter now has permission as he's giving this speech in front of 120 people coming back to Acts chapter 1. Peter now has permission, I think, to look back into the Psalms and say, which are the Psalms that declare the woeness of what happened to Judas? How bad was this? He's like, you know, 69 comes to mind. Psalm 109 comes to mind. Did you notice the different feel of what Sue read from Psalm 69 versus what Sue, I think, then assigned to Brad to read from Psalm 69? Brad, why don't you take this part? hmm? Here's, Here's Psalm 69. May his camp become desolate. Let there be no one to dwell in it let another take his office. That doesn't sound so bad, right? That's the part that Peter quotes when he's referring back to Psalm 69. He's saying there's desolation, nobody to dwell, somebody else should take his office. Psalm 69 has a lot of anger in it. The kind of problems that Sue read describing the plight of the psalmist, when it turns to God I'm not just going to grieve this. I am going to turn this into an imprecatory psalm. I'm going to turn this into a psalm of cursing and woe. He says, let their table become a snare. Where they're at peace, let it be a trap. Let their eyes be darkened. Let their loins tremble. Lord, may they feel your indignation. Lord, may they feel your anger. And for them, bring punishment upon punishment. Lord, for them, let there be absolutely no acquittal. That's the energy behind Psalm 69 that he's quoting. It is, if you were to take a sample of the imprecatory Psalms, it's one of the worst. It's the one Peter says, if I'm trying to sum up what Jesus meant when he said, woe to the one who would betray me, that's the Psalm that comes to mind. And guys, nobody's fulfilled that psalm as an enemy of the kingdom of God more than this one who led Jesus into the heart of the beast. So for him, punishment upon punishment. For him, God, let him know nothing but your anger. Lord, for him... Dark eyes, trembling loins. Lord, for him, snares and traps and trouble and indignation and anger and just no acquittal, no appeal process. Doom him, Lord, bring him punishment, and then bring him more punishment. But the other psalm that he reads is from Psalm 109. and We read this, be not silent, O God of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me. Appoint a wicked man against him. He's he's been talking about them, but he transitions now to just one person. says, let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him come forth guilty. So may his days be few. May another take his office. That's the line that, that Peter grabbed. May his children be fatherless, his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. Lord, he goes on. Lord, let creditors seize everything that he has. Nobody give him kindness. No pity to his children. Cut off his posterity. Let let his name be blotted out. Cursed his soaked soaked body like oil that would be going into his bones. I mean, Psalm 109 is not a bad one in terms of bringing the woe either. And Peter... Talking to the 120 says, let me tell you the two psalms that Judas fulfilled when he did what he did to our Lord. Now, if I'm you. Maybe you're thinking, Peter, you didn't have a good Friday either. If I remember your story, Peter, why don't you belong among this group. Peter, you were a coward. Jesus told you what was going to happen. You declared your allegiance and Jesus looked at you and said, Satan has asked permission to take you out, man, to sift you and to work you the way a grain of wheat gets ground down. I've prayed for you. But despite every bit of your intentions, all your ambitions to be faithful, you will deny me three times before morning hits, bud. He was even warned, and he still did it exactly as Jesus declared. What's the difference? Was it worse for Judas to come and betray the Son of Man with a kiss than for Peter to deny that he even knew him and, if you take one of the account, to call curses down on himself if he were lying? Bring me the Psalm 109 curses. Bring me the Psalm 69 curses. I'm ready to take God's wrath and indignation, punishment upon punishment, and no acquittal. I'm ready to so declare that I want nothing to do with Jesus. Peter, why are you giving this speech? I'm so glad that not only does Judas make his way into the story, but that Peter's the one who has to lead the speech about it. Because it mandates that we ask the difference. Peter's not here because he was a righteous man qualified by all of his obedience. Peter's not here because he was the one that if we said, hey, let's just rank the failures of the disciples. Okay, John, uh, you ran away naked. You're out. Sorry, dude. Judas, clearly you're dead. You knew what to do, you know. But if we had to eliminate anybody else from the evening, isn't Peter just going to make his way off? I mean, Peter, you're going to, if nothing else... You got a three-month reprieve. Go sit in the corner. Maybe we'll bring you back once you've been restored. You know, go think about what you've done. No, Peter's right here in the beginning. Because we're Peter, guys. And none of the disciples were better than Peter. We have all faced our moments. Every account of everyone there, save the women. And yet Luke is inviting us into the story, reminding us. You think you screwed up? You you think you've failed? So did he. He just met Jesus again rather than killing himself. He found hope not in what he had done, but what Jesus declared to be true because of what Jesus had done. He Recommissioned three times, after failing three times, was restored by Jesus because he stayed and waited for mercy. That's the difference between Peter and Judas, guys. He stayed and trusted in mercy. But it is Peter who speaks... And I think that some of this imprecatory language describes a little bit the difference. Admittedly, a little hard to reckon, reconcile the sense of Peter got, or Judas got some money. Went out, hung himself after giving the money back. With the account that we read in verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the field is the field of blood going forward. If you're a historian. And all you're trying to do is figure out the precise details of how Judas died. So that we can give him due attention. And we can make sure that we've all documented with historical accuracy how Judas died. Then Luke did a really bad job of telling the story. But a guy who can structure his narrative so well probably recognizes that there's some details that don't feel like they fall really work out here. What do we get from Judas or from Peter's account here, or Luke's account? It's hard to know what that parenthetical two verses really are. Is this Peter saying it, or is it Luke inserting it in the middle of Peter's speech? The it's hard to read Greek exactly that way and be able to come across with it. But but what we get is an account that's a little more worthy of an imprecatory psalm, isn't it? This isn't just the static data. This is the gory data. This isn't just saying, hey, God will be angry at sinners. This is the imprecatory psalm that says, let their children be begging for mercy, and may no mercy be shown on their posterity. Let them be the ones who are fatherless, let his wife be a widow. Let there be creditors who take everything. This is just the account that's gross. I mean, his bowels are spilling out. And and blood is the thing that marks his like legacy here at the end of the day. Peter's just telling details we didn't know from the other account about the story. Did the body hang there so long that over the 40-day period of time, it rotted, dropped, burst open? How did the field exactly come... Luke's not particularly concerned that we get all the details down. So if people bring this account to you and see the Bible's full of errors, it's okay. Let's read what Luke's trying to get across to us. Judas was worthy of a gory death. We're describing it here for you. It can be reconciled in with the account of the fact that he did hang himself. But the problems that are present in the life of these witnesses can be represented both by the speaker and the one he's speaking about. We have all failed Jesus terribly. The only people who ought to have any degree of confidence aren't speaking in this moment. And those are the problems that we've got. And yet, the story continues. Despite the problem, the staffing issue is addressed in verse 21. And it's in this, the fact that they are going to replace somebody as low as Judas and not just decide, hey guys, we used to have 12. We're down to 11. It's just, we're just going to call ourselves the 11 going forward. There's something about the necessity of 12 that Luke thinks is so significant that has more to do with who... With the number than with the one who fills the 12th spot. You notice that? Listen to the way the story even goes about. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time. Remember, Peter's speaking here in verse 21. Who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John up until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Here's the interesting thing of, of the way that even these guys are being described. There's Joseph, who's also called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. We didn't pick him. Why did I need all three of his names then? <laughs> Doesn't this seem like a weird storyteller? Somebody just drones on and on about details. You're like, get to the point. Oh, yeah, sorry. And Matthias. There he is. And we sadly don't hear anything about him either. The Catholic Church has some traditions about St. Matthias. They're not from the pages of Scripture. Which makes, leads me to believe that this wasn't so much about Joseph Barsabbath justice or Matthias. This is about the need for 12. The 12-ness of the witness seems to be more Luke's point than the Matthiasness of the twelfth you get the point if this guy was so significant and what Luke was going to be doing is saying oh by the way given all that stuff you're going to hear this guy Matthias do later on in my account oh my goodness if I don't tell you where he came from you're going to be like who's this Matthias guy so I got to tell you the story of who this Matthias guy is that's not what happens in the rest of Luke sorry spoiler we don't hear about him again But Luke wants to pause the story to tell us something about there being 12 does matter. Something about the fact that we need to have a replacement for him matters significantly. Here's the way the rest of the story goes. They prayed and they said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for him. Maybe a, maybe a hearkening back to Exodus 28, uh, a way that the high priest could discern the will of God was with these two dice-like sort of things. Maybe it was one of those. If you did the study on this and you came to this moment, you were asking questions of, is this the way we're supposed to make Decisions today, I would say, I think this one's more descriptive than prescriptive. But if you're left with more questions, why did they do that? Well, then this preacher shares the same questions with you. It's what happened. It's how they chose. Some commentators would say, well, they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet, so they couldn't know. That might be. Some say, there may be, Luke's deliberate attempt to point you back to thinking about the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, there is a story of another 12. There is a story of 12 that developed that became witnesses for God. And if he wants to direct your attention away from Barsabbas or Matthias to the 12-ness of the story, this might be a way, I think it's an odd literary way of getting your attention into the Old Testament. I think it's just more what they did. Luke's saying this is what they did. Why did they do it? Luke doesn't tell us, so I don't know. But it's what they did. And when it was done, the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11, so now we've got 12 again. But the 12-ness, I think, is what matters. Because God is showing something through Luke that what is going to happen coming from the king With his witnesses. Is not going to be something new. It will have a new topic. God came to earth as a human being. Took on death for human beings. Rose again as a new type of human being. And and invites people who have been following the old human being. To follow him as the new order of human being. You can be like Jesus. Is a pretty good message. It's a new message. But God has always been using his witnesses. Over the years. Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord. The King of Israel. And his Redeemer. The Lord of hosts. I am first. And I am last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare. And set it before me. Since I appointed. An ancient people. Fear not. Nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old. And declared it. You are. My. Witnesses. Is there a God beside me. There is no rock. I know not any. One way of telling the story of the Old Testament is the way that God takes his faithless ones and makes them into witnesses of his faithfulness. Despite all the story of Israel, they have never once been faithful, but God has preserved his faithfulness to those 12. And now in Acts chapter 1, he deploys his 12 for the rest of the story. Because God will always have his witnesses. And so the point that we need to remember right now, and there are two that I want to make to close, is that we not ignore the need for God's witnesses, the ongoing need for God's witnesses today. John MacArthur said the following, the world in which the first Christian lived was brutal, totally pagan, And openly anti-Christian. There was no affirmation of morality. Or any sort of cultural Christianity. Early believers were aliens to everything in the culture. What's more. Christians had no governmental advocacy. Or special protections. And so unrestrained persecution was happening to them. Everywhere. To embrace Christ often meant signing one's own death warrant. You know, I've often heard Christians talk in our day and age about wanting to get back to the essence of first century Christianity. Are you sure? And is it terrible if this is what it would take? Because I think we could reread this quote. The world in which today's Christian lives is becoming brutal, totally pagan, and openly anti-Christian. There is no affirmation of morality or any sort of cultural Christianity. Today's believers are aliens to everything in our culture, and what's more, Christians are losing governmental advocacy and special protections. And so it is possible that unrestrained persecution may happen to them Everywhere. And it may be that Americans would taste what other believers in other countries today experience, that to embrace Christ means signing one's own death warrant. Would you see God move in our country again the way he moved in these days? Be careful before you answer, because it may take this environment. Are we sure that what we want to pine for as a church today are the days of the 50s when people gave lip service to God and cared little about his glory? Are we sure we want to go back to a time when we had a cultural sort of sense of permission to do what we want? But more or less, if we're honest, there was a morality that was being ignored. Christianity was being patted on the head. Church attendance would be there, but... Generally speaking, I don't know that that's where we want to get to, guys. I'd like to get back to the point that God's word makes a dent in our society. I'd like to get back to the point that when God's word is declared, it's declared with power. I'd like to get back to the point that when light shines, it shines in the darkness. I'd like to get back to the point that when Christians are salt, that it's noticeable, but it might mean that these circumstances need to be recreated again in our day. And would we bemoan that if it meant God would work powerfully in the midst of it? Let's be careful what we wish for. And no matter what the climate is around us, let's remember this point. We should not ignore the ongoing need for God's witnesses. But the second point for us to remember is that we don't want to forget the ongoing neediness of God's witnesses. Is the one part that I left out from that quote? It was a point that John John MacArthur made about the word witness in the early day. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, not being a Greek scholar myself, but you know what it looks a lot like? Martyr. It's martyros or martyres, or ask Michael later on, and he can help you with that one. But the word witness... Is the word martyr. When this is being read and we're reading witnesses. That sounds easy. What do you have to do? I need to be called up there. Maybe face a little bit of a hostile prosecuting attorney. But all it's going to cost me is a day's work that I don't get to be there. And I'm going to just have to, you know, pledge and make sure that I just tell the truth. No. Martyrs became martyrs because they were faithful witnesses first. And it may be that you hear Jenna's story, or you hear Barb's story, or you hear Hope's emerging story, which is good. We're glad you're in the beginning of your story, Hope. And you may say, I don't know that I'm qualified to do that kind of thing. I I don't know that... I would have the ability or that God would, if he was going to choose anybody to be his witness, that he would look at me and think, oh yeah, that guy's qualified. (laughs) Do you know what 2023 was like for me? I, I was not faithful on my campus. I was not great at the commission given to me. And I hear you saying that God needs ongoing witnesses in the world, and I would just say this witness is needy and nothing more. So was Peter. So was the preacher of the message we heard today. And all of us together look to a different psalm and claim the one that we read during communion. Blessed is the one whose transgression is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. So I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The reason I wanted to take communion before we approach this text is so that I could have this privilege. As an ordained, as an installed elder, minister of the word of God, I declare to you that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you those sins, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and to establish you as his witness today. That is all you need to go into this world with the blessed message that Jesus has risen for us. Let's pray. Father, we, the the Peter, the coward, we, the unfaithful, who deserve to have your curses called down upon us, are so grateful that Christ became sin instead in our place. We're grateful that in waiting for you, you showed us mercy. That you took on Psalm 69, that you took on Psalm 109. That you bore the curses that we might be blessed. You have purchased us with your blood. And so we say, take our lives They belong to you. Let us speak and live for you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and declare these truths together in song.